Good morning, Christ Community Church. Good to see you guys. Christ makes us alive. That's a good reason to celebrate, wouldn't you say? So thank you for coming to help us spread the good news. And we're spreading it in DeKalb. Greetings to you at our new DeKalb campus and in Streamwood Bartlett and at Blackberry Creek and here in St. Charles. We're going to dive into God's word. Let's pray and ask him to be our teacher. Uh, God, if we're going to hear and understand and apply to our life truths from your word, you're going to have to awaken us like the song just said. You're going to have to make us spiritually able to get it. And so we pray that you'd be our teacher and you'd be the one who makes us alive today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Nano is a 20-year-old Norwegian woman who believes, who believes that she's been born into the wrong species. Now, I'm not making this up. This was in the news, so it's got to be true. Uh, <laughs> she believes that she's a cat that's trapped inside a human body. And so about four years ago, when the realization dawned on her that she's really feline, she started patting around her house on her hands and knees. She wears fake cat ears and cat tail, and, and she's scared of dogs. She doesn't like to take baths. She meows a lot. Now, the good news is her therapist says that she should grow out of this false identity. Okay, ident I hope she does. <laughs> Where does our identity come from? We, we're in the third week of a six-part uh, series about personal identity called True Self. And we've been learning that if you want a healthy, robust, life-enhancing sense of who you are, you will find your personal identity in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now, our textbook for this True Self series is the Epistle of Ephesians in the New Testament, and it's written by the Apostle Paul to a group of Christ followers in the bustling seaport city, ancient city of Ephesus. So I want you to turn with me right now, if you brought a Bible to Ephesians 2. If you could, rattle your pages a little bit. It makes me feel good that you brought a Bible. If you're doing your phone, just flash your phone up here real quick. See some phones, that's good. Okay, today's passage is one of five places in the epistle of Ephesians where Paul makes a contrast that Bible scholars refer to as a formerly versus now contrast. Okay, formerly versus now. In other words, one of five places where Paul says formerly, okay, before you surrendered your lives to Jesus, this is who you were, but now this is who you are. It's kind of like one of those weight loss ads. You, you've all seen those, okay? This is a hefty George before he encounters a Nutrisystem, and now this is a lean, mean George after he's lost 150 pounds on Nutrisystem. Okay, but, but in this case, in Ephesians, the contrast is much bigger than a weight loss thing. What, what Paul's going to tell us in today's passage is, formerly you were dead, and now you're alive. That's a big contrast, dead and alive, wouldn't you say? And I want you to lock onto that word alive. That's our word for the day. So throughout the course of the series, uh, Pastor Clayton and I, we're choosing one word for each of these passages in Ephesians 1 to 3 to describe who we are in Christ. One word identity markers, and the word for today is alive. Say that with me, alive. Good. Let's take a look at Ephesians 2. We're going to start with a picture of who we were formerly, okay, who we are outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I'm calling this first picture humans by nature. If 
you, you haven't begun to fill out your outline, I encourage you to follow along. Fill it out as we go. Humans by nature. So we are not cats by nature, con, con, you know, contrary to uh, Nano the Norwegian. We're, we're humans. But unfortunately, there's a downside to that identity. And the Apostle Paul spells out the downside in the opening verses of Ephesians chapter 2. So if your Bible is open, let me read the first three verses of Ephesians 2. Paul says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. You know, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God, for this very unflattering picture, but true picture of who we are by nature, who we are outside of Christ. Okay, Paul's using three descriptors in the verses I just read to tell us who we are by nature. The, the, the first is dead. Okay, dead. Write that down. He says in the opening verse, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now, I've explained this to you, how this works. Okay, when we consistently go our way instead of God's way, which is something we all do. Okay, what, what we do is we disconnect from God who is the giver of life. So what, what happens when you unplug from the source of life? You die, right? So just, just recently, Sue and I have been remodeling our upstairs master bathroom. So we had a crack in the sink, and it led us to replace the sink and then start doing a bunch of other stuff up there. And so for about a month, we were without our bathroom. But we have a little powder room upstairs in a kind of a small sink. So the two of us were sharing this tiny sink, had all our, our paraphernalia spread on the sink, and it worked, with the exception that Sue would occasionally unplug my electric toothbrush in order to plug in her hairdryer, and then she'd forget to replug me in. Can you feel my pain? All right? So, now, yeah, I mean, what happens when your electric toothbrush is not plugged in? What happens, friends? It dies, right? And it usually dies when you're late for work and only half your teeth are brushed, all right? So, but, you know, we've gotten over it, so don't feel badly. Some therapy, marriage therapy. And, uh, but. When we unplug from God, we die. The Bible says it begins with spiritual death, Okay, the relationship with God is broken. That leads to physical death at the end of this life. And if the problem doesn't get fixed, it's eternal death, separation from God in the world to come. So sin disconnects us from God. Now, the Apostle Paul uses two different words for sin in Ephesians 2, verse 1. He's not being redundant. He's not repeating himself. He's telling us there are two different ways that we can disconnect from God. So catch both of these. The first word Paul uses, look at verse 1, is the word transgressions. So this is why you bring your own Bible. You could circle transgressions and write out in the margin, write the crossing of a boundary. Okay, that's what the word means. It's, it's just another word for trespassing. You know, we go someplace, we do something that's off limits. We know it's wrong, but we go there anyway. You know, I'll never forget it number of years ago when my three kids were teenagers. We were coming home on Christmas Day. We'd spent the day at Grandma and Grandpa's, and I was driving home. The three of them are sitting in the back seat, 
And we come to this road on the way home where there's a big barricade that says, do not enter. Now, this is the normal route I took home. They were doing some construction, and I wasn't going to let that stop me. So this is the shortest way home. So I drove around the barrier, and I continued on my way for about 100 feet before the officer who'd been driving behind me and I hadn't seen turned on his lights and pulled me over. How many of you parents know it's really embarrassing to get busted in front of your three teenage kids, okay? But I was wrong. I had willfully, deliberately broken the law. Sin disconnects us from God. Some of those sins are transgressions. We know what the Bible, we know what God's word says about stuff. If we didn't, we could probably, you know, guess what the Bible says about gossip, what it says about dishonesty, what it says about sex outside of marriage, what it says about making idols out of material things in our lives, what it says about dishonoring parents, what it says about getting drunk, what it says about racial discrimination. But we do those things anyway. Transgressions. And they leave us spiritually dead. Now, the other word that Paul uses to describe the cause of our spiritual deadness, also in verse 1, is the word sins. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. And again, you could circle sins and out in the margin, the original Greek language that Paul wrote in, the word sin means to miss the mark, to miss the mark, to fall short of some standard. So when God's word tells us what not to do and we do it anyway, that's transgressions. When God's word tells us what we're supposed to do, but we then neglect to do it, those are sins. See the difference here? But they both make us spiritually dead. So the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself. Did you do that this week? Did you love your neighbor as much as you love yourself? Okay. The, the, the Bible says, take care of widows and orphans. Do we do that? The Bible says the first share of our income needs to be brought to the Lord for tithes and offerings. Did you participate in that offering just a little, little bit ago? You know, the Bible says if someone's abusing you, treating you badly, you ought to pray for them. Pray God's blessing on them. Have you done that this week? See, when the Bible tells us what to do and we neglect to do it, those are our sins. Transgressions are active rebellion against God's standards. Sins are passive indifference to God's standards, but they both leave us spiritually dead. And here's the interesting thing about spiritual deadness, friends. We often miss it. We don't see it. We don't see it in ourselves. We don't see it in the people around us. I mean, right now across four campuses, there's a good chance you're sitting next to somebody who's spiritually dead. There's a good chance you're spiritually dead and you're oblivious to it because on the surface, we look very much alive. We're physically alive. We're moving around, raising our hands, making friends. We're socially alive, interacting with other people. We're intellectually alive, stretching our brain at school and at work. But we could be alive in many other ways and still be spiritually dead and quite possibly oblivious to it. Sin unplugs us from God and it leads to deadness. Second, we're not only dead, Paul describes us in Ephesians 2 as enslaved. Write that down, enslaved. Now, Paul doesn't use the word enslaved in this passage, but that's exactly what he's describing here. He describes, describes three evil forces that have a tendency to enslave us. 
They have a tendency to control our lives. They're the world, the devil, and the flesh. So you begin with the world. Again, go back to the opening verses. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. You used to follow, Paul says, the ways of this world. Now, the Bible uses the word world in several different ways. Sometimes world just means the earth, the planet. Okay, sometimes the word world refers to people. It's everybody, everywhere is the world. But sometimes the Bible uses the word world to describe a value system that's contrary to God's standards. Okay, a value system that's contrary to God's standards. Now, that value system may be promoted by peer pressure. You know, so I, I begin to sprinkle my vocabulary with profanity when I'm hanging out with buddies who use that language. Or it may be promoted by advertising, so I'm out and about shopping for more and more clothes, even though I got a closet full of clothes at home because the advertisers have convinced me that those clothes aren't cool. I need some cool clothes. That, that value system may be pr promoted by business practices, you know, so that I stretch the truth a little bit when I'm with my customers because, hey, everybody does it, and that's how you close a deal. You promise more than you can deliver. That, that value system may be promoted by the entertainment industry, so I find myself watching a movie with gratuitous sex in it. Why? Because the Academy told me it's up for an Oscar. See, that, that's the world system squeezing us into its mold. It's the world enslaving us. And the world isn't the only thing that enslaves us, so does the devil. Go, go back to the middle of verse 2. The Apostle Paul says that before we surrendered our lives to Christ, we followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. So who is, who is this ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient? Who's Paul talking about? He's talking about Satan. He's talking about the devil. Now, you can choose not to believe in the devil, you can choose to dismiss him as some cartoonish figure in a you know, red suit, horns, pitchfork. But the fact is the Bible teaches us that just as there is an unseen personal God with angelic cohorts, so there is an unseen personal devil with demonic forces of evil at his beck and call. So, so if you believe in, in God, it's not a stretch to believe in a a devil. Paul goes on to talk about him in greater detail in chapter 6 of Ephesians. Writes a whole passage about how this devil is out to scheme against you, to trip you up, to destroy your life. He may do that in any number of ways. Okay, he may do that through addictive behaviors. He may do that through broken relationships. He may do that by just preoccupying you with yourself causing you to be disinterested in God. He may do it by making temptation more tempting. In a host of other ways, he's scheming against you to enslave you. By nature, humans are enslaved by the world, by the devil, and thirdly, by the flesh. Go back to Ephesians 2. Let me read verse 3 to you. Paul says, all of us also lived among them at one time. We all did this gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. You know, we were all gratifying the desires of our flesh. In other words, 
you know, this temptation to sin, it doesn't just come from the outside. It's not just the world and its influence. It's not just the devil and his schemes. It's your heart. It's your own rebellious heart on the inside that is prompting you to desire what God says is wrong. Now, if you remember this, years ago, uh, Woody Allen made it into the news because he had just begun a sexual relationship with his adopted stepdaughter. And most people said, oh, yuck, and that's, that's wrong. But do you remember Woody Allen's response? He said, the heart wants what the heart wants. Others can't do anything about it. The heart wants what the heart wants. And you know what? It's absolutely true. The heart wants what the heart wants. But sometimes the heart wants what's wrong. Sometimes the heart, your heart today may want vengeance on an ex-spouse. Your heart today may want pornography. Your heart today may want so much success at business that you've become a workaholic. Your heart today may want so many material things that you're overspending what you make and you're in debt. See, when your heart wants what God says, whoa, stop, it leads to enslavement. You become a slave to your flesh. So here's a third word to describe who Paul says we are by nature. We're dead. We're slaves, enslaved. Third, we're condemned. Look at the last half of verse 3. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Now, this is not a Bible doctrine that people like to hear about. I mean, we prefer to think of God as kind of an overly indulgent parent who most often gives us what we want, and occasionally we're bad, but he sort of lightly taps our wrist and then reminds us of how much he loves us. But that is not the God who reveals himself to us in the pages of the Bible. One of God's attributes, according to Scripture, is wrath, righteous anger. Now, we get a little uncomfortable with this attribute because we're used to seeing anger in people, and it's not a good trait, right? Human anger can be impulsive. We talk about people who got a short fuse or fly off the handle. Human anger can be vengeful. People say, I don't get mad, I just get even. Human anger can be petty. Anger can flare up over the smallest stuff. God's wrath is not like human anger. God's wrath, let me give you a definition of God's wrath from Bible scholar John Stott. He says, God's wrath is God's personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil. It's his settled refusal to compromise with evil and his resolve instead to condemn it. See, what what, what Dr. Stott is saying is that God doesn't put up with evil even when it pops up in the lives of people he loves because God is totally holy. God is totally righteous, just, good. And so he must punish, he must condemn sin. And picture, if you would, a judge in a courtroom and there's somebody in front of his bench who's just been declared guilty by the jury guilty. But let's say that this judge loves that person because the person is the the judge's son or daughter or some friend of of his. That doesn't give the judge the right to excuse the guilty party, does it? The judge has got to pronounce sentence on that person in order to be just. And so God, if he's going to be just, must pronounce sentence on our sin. And we've already seen what the sentence of sin is. What is it? Death. 
Romans 6, verse 23, Paul says, the wages of sin is death. It's spiritual death now, physical death at the end of this life, and eternal death in the world to come. Humans, by nature, are dead spiritually. They're enslaved by the world, the devil, the flesh, and they're condemned. Now, that's the bad news, and it's pretty bad. So how about some good news? Here's our second point. We've been looking at at who humans are by nature. Let's take a look at who humans are in Christ. Okay, in Christ. We need a major overhaul, friends. A little bit of cosmetic touching up is is not going to do. I don't know if you've seen the new app that's going viral in the United States, beginning to skyrocket, where you can photo edit your selfies. This app has been popular in China for years. In fact, they estimate that tens of millions of people use it in China. Uh, In fact, according to the news article, I read over half, over half of the pictures of people that are posted on social media sites of any sort have been doctored by this app. Okay, people have made themselves look more beautiful. You get rid of your wrinkles, you get rid of your Jay Leno chin, okay, you add a little muscle or you make yourself a bit bustier, Uh, All right, you do it all with an app. You just touch yourself up. Well, it's not that easy to change your true identity. See, apart from Christ, we're dead, enslaved, condemned. And we're powerless to change ourselves. But Christ can give us a new identity if we'll surrender our lives to him. Now, a couple of weeks ago, when we opened this series, I pointed out to you that one of Paul's favorite expressions in his 13 New Testament epistles to describe Christ followers is he uses the expression, they're people who are in Christ or with Christ or in him. He uses that little expression, in Christ or with Christ or or in him, 164 times in his New Testament epistles, 36 times in the book of, of Ephesians, half a dozen times in the passage that we're looking at today. So when a person surrenders their life to Christ, a supernatural spiritual union takes place. That person now lives in Christ. Christ now lives in them. And so everything that Jesus has accomplished gets credited to the account of that Christ follower. Amazing. So so by nature, humans are dead, enslaved, condemned. But in Christ or with Christ, humans can be given a brand new identity. So let's take a look at the new identity in Ephesians chapter 2. There are three descriptors of this new identity, and interestingly, each one of them corresponds to one of the three descriptors of who we are by nature that we just covered. So we said by nature we're dead, right? That's the first one. Well, in Christ, the first descriptor is we are made alive. Look at verse 4. Paul has just said that You know, we're dead, enslaved, condemned, and then he turns the corner, verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Made alive. Now, four weeks from today, we're going to be celebrating Easter here. It's a big deal for us at Christ Community Church. You know, it's, it's the day that... 
Jesus rose from the dead. He had been crucified, declared dead, buried in a tomb, stone rolled in front of it. And three days later, he came back to life. Totally conquered sin and death and hell. And we believe that there's good historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection. Well, here's the good news, friend. If you're in Christ, now listen, if you're in Christ, Jesus' resurrection is your resurrection. Yes, even though you were formerly spiritually dead, you are now made alive with Christ. He came bursting out of the tomb, and one of the songs we like to sing around here, we're going to sing after communion today, is we ran out of that grave, right? This is an incredible, dramatic change. This is not something you could do to yourself. Okay, you could better yourself in a lot of ways. Okay, if you, 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 you want to, you know... Build up your body, you could start working out, start running, start eating right. If you, you want to help yourself, better yourself socially, you can take a Dale Carnegie course. If you want to build up your brain, your intellectual powers, go get some more education. But you can't make yourself alive if you're spiritually dead. You can't do it. Because only Jesus can pull off a resurrection. However, if you are in Christ. If you're in him, then you've been made alive in Christ. And you now have a capacity for a relationship with God that you never had before because you were spiritually dead. You get it? Good. Here's a second descriptor of who people are if they're in Christ. Enthroned. Look at verse 6. It says, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Paul's favorite expression. Three times in one verse there. So after Jesus was raised from the dead, we read in scripture that he mentored his close followers for a few weeks. And, and then what happened? Jesus returned to heaven. God raised Jesus up and he seated Jesus at his right hand on his heavenly throne. So if we are in Christ now catch this, because this, this blows your mind. If we are in Christ, guess what's true of us right now? We are enthroned at God's right hand. In Christ, we rule. In Christ, we... What a contrast with who we are by nature. By nature, we're enslaved. By nature, we're under the control of the world. The devil, the flesh, these bad boys are always dictating our behavior. They're telling us what to do, and we're doing it. They're kicking our tail. But Paul says here, this is not the case if you're in Christ. In Christ, you get to rule. In Christ, you're like Tony Stark when he puts on, Iron, on the Iron Man suit, right? So you put on Christ, and Tony Stark, he goes from being a narcissistic inventor to being a superhero. And you put on Christ, and now you can rule over the world and over the devil and over the flesh, that's why Paul says in Romans 6, verse 12, he says, if you're in Christ, don't let sin reign anymore in your mortal body to obey its desires. See, why are you letting sin rule when God's allowed you to rule in Christ? In Christ, we're enthroned. Third descriptor, in Christ, we're loved. You remember the third descriptor of who we are by nature? We're dead, we're enslaved, we're condemned. Condemned. But once we surrender our lives to Jesus, we're no, no longer on the receiving end of God's wrath. Jesus took the wrath we deserve when he died on the cross. 
And so we're now on the receiving end of God's love. And I want you to see all the synonyms for God's love in this passage. One Bible scholar says the Apostle Paul loves to stack words. Okay, when he wants to make a point, he doesn't like to say it once. He likes to say it in multiple ways, but saying the same thing. So look at the stacking of words that have to do with God's love. Verse 4, but because of his great love for us, circle love, got your own Bible, God who is rich in mercy, oh, here's another one, circle mercy, made us alive with Christ. So we got love, we got mercy. Drop down to the second half of verse 5. It is by grace, oh, there's another one, grace you have been saved. Add grace to the list. Drop down to verse 7. In order that in the coming ages he, God, might show the incomparable riches of his grace. Oh, another grace. Circle that. Expressed in his kindness. Circle kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You know, in the space of a paragraph, we read about God's love, God's mercy, God's grace, God's kindness, all for people who by nature are deserving of God's wrath. God's condemnation. So so what changes our identity? You know, surrendering our lives to Jesus, becoming united with Christ, becoming in him. You say, okay, you keep saying that, that, but practically speaking, how does it happen? How does a person surrender to Christ? Let me keep reading. Next two verses, verses 8 and 9, are probably two of the most important verses in the entire Bible. In fact, if you want to start memorizing portions of the Bible, sometime memorize Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Paul says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. So Paul really underscores the fact here that we can't change our own identity. We can't save ourselves from being dead, enslaved, and condemned. And he, he emphasizes this helplessness with phrases like, this is not from yourselves. Okay, this salvation is not from yourselves. This is not by works. In other words, you can't do it. You can't earn it. You can't change your true identity. I was uh, watching the news about a month ago, and there was a pretty amusing story. In fact, if you saw it on the news, you probably laughed as I did. It took place out in Oregon, and they just changed a law at the beginning of this year that allows people to pump their own gas. So prior to this, you know, it required an attendant to pump your gas. Did you see this story? And so people now faced with the prospect of pumping their own gas, some of, some of this are, some Oregonians are looking at it like, I can't do this. And, and some of the stuff they've posted on Facebook in this regard, it's just been hilarious. Like the guy who said, I tried doing this once when I visited my brother in California, and I almost died. <laughs> Dude, pumping your gas? <laughs> almost died. And, I, you know, I was watching this on the news, and I wanted to say, Oregonians, you can do it. You can pump your own gas, really. Let me tell you what you can't do. You can't save yourself. You can't. You you can't change yourself from dead to alive, from enslaved to enthroned, from condemned to loved by God. You can't change that about yourself. No amount of church attendance, no amount of good deeds, no amount of charitable contributions, no amount of moral rule keeping is going to change that. You say, well, what does God want from me? 
Look again at the opening line of verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. So Paul says God will graciously, God will graciously save us if we'll respond by faith. So faith is the key. The question is, what is faith? You know, I hear people all the time reducing faith to a kind of a minimalistic view that, you know, faith ends up being easy believism. So you believe in Jesus? Yeah, I believe in Jesus. Okay, you're saved. The Bible doesn't talk that way. The Bible has a much more robust picture of what genuine faith looks like. In Scripture, genuine faith has three component parts. Let me spell it out for you. And by the way, we, we describe this in a little booklet called God's Good News that's available free at our information counter. Take as many as you want for yourself and for others. But we describe what saving faith looks like. First of all, there's a mind component. You've got to believe certain facts. You, you, can't make up, you can't believe whatever you want to believe about God and Jesus and yourself. You've got to believe what God has revealed in his word. Okay, facts like... I am dead in my transgressions and sins. Do you believe that about yourself? That your sins have separated you from God who's the giver of life and so spiritually speaking, you're dead. You gotta believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for sins and the penalty is what? It's death. Do you believe that? That's why Jesus died. He died to pay your penalty. You've you got to believe that Jesus is fully human and fully God. He's full, if he were not fully human, he couldn't be your representative. Because he's human, he can serve in your place, take your sin upon himself, pay your penalty. Because he's fully God, his sacrifice is of infinite worth, and it will apply to, it'll cover everybody who surrenders their life to him. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And when he rose from the dead, it means that he's alive today. And if you'll surrender to him, he can offer you forgiveness and new life. See, there's certain things you've got to believe with your mind. Okay, you've got to know these things, grasp these things, agree with these things. There's a second component to genuine faith, and that's a heart component. See, faith is not just an intellectual exercise. It's more than getting your facts straight. It's more than saying, yeah, 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 I believe that stuff. It's also responding to the love that Christ has shown us by desiring to love him back. You have a desire to love Jesus? You look at what Jesus has done for you and you say, oh my goodness, how could I not love him? It means looking at your track record of favorite sins and your heart says, you know what? I want a relationship with Jesus more than I want to continue in these patterns of disobedience. See, if your heart, listen, friends, if your heart is not being drawn to Christ, then you're just not ready to surrender to him because true faith comes from the heart as well as from the mind. There's a third component of faith in Scripture, and that is your will. See, surrendering to Jesus means you've gotten sick and tired of managing your own life. You've seen what a mess you can make of things, and you want to turn over control to King Jesus. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans 10, verse 9. He says, if, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. you got to declare with your mouth, Jesus is my Lord, my boss, my master, my king. 
See, this is genuine faith. It means believing the right things in your mind. It means having a love for Jesus that has been cultivated in your heart. It means surrendering the will to the leadership of Jesus so that you begin to follow him. This is what genuine faith looks like. This is the faith that will unite you with Christ. This is the faith that will make you in him. This is the faith that will lead you to go from dead to alive, from enslaved to enthroned, from the wrath of God condemned to the love and mercy and kindness and grace of God. And my question is, have you ever put, put that kind of faith in Christ? Have you ever surrendered to him mind, heart, and will? Because if you never have, before we go to communion today, in just a few moments when I close the sermon, I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that, to make that decision, to lock down on it today. Now, there's one more major point we got to make in the passage, though, because there's one more verse. You know, the passage ends at verse 10, and verse 10 describes humans on mission. So we've looked at humans by nature. We've looked at humans in Christ. Thirdly, humans on mission. Let me read verse 10 to you. It says, For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, this is really interesting because in verses 8 and 9 that I said you ought to memorize, Paul has just emphatically said, we are not saved by good works. Here in verse 10, he says, we are saved for good works. You see the difference? We're not saved by those good works. We're only saved by surrendering to Jesus and becoming in Christ, and he saves us. But once he saves us, God's got a mission for us. God has created us for a special purpose in Christ, and that is to do good works. He has saved us, not just to free us from our sins, not just to give you a ticket to heaven. He saved you for good works. In fact, Paul makes this point in a really interesting way. And unfortunately, if you read your, your English translation, you miss it completely because you could only pick it up in the original Greek text. So let, let me read this to you. Verse 1, Paul says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. You used to live in sins. In the original Greek text, literally what he says is, you used to walk in sins. So circle that and put walk in the margin of your Bible. And then drop to the last verse of the passage, verse 10. He says, in the middle of the verse, you've been created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In the literal Greek, to do there is to walk in. So Paul is deliberately creating bookends here. He's starting the passage by saying, you know who you were, were formerly by nature? You were people who walked in sin. Okay, day after day, step by step by step by step, that's what you used to do. But God came along and changed all that when you surrendered your life to Jesus. You know who you are now? You are people whom God has created to walk in good works. Work after work after work. Good deed after good deed after good deed. That's who God made you to be. This is his mission for your life. Came across an interesting article in my news magazine the other day, the, the article was entitled the, the Science of Happiness, and it reported on an 80-year-long research project that's been going on at Harvard University. Behavioral scientists have been studying the building blocks of happiness, what makes people happy. And some of the building blocks that they've identified are no surprise. You, you would expect them. You know, close relationships, good health, positive life experiences, 
Okay, money? No. <laughs> Interestingly, the 80-year-long study found that the more money you make, the less likely you are to be happy. How about that? But I want to add one other building block that I read about in this research project. They also identified volunteering, serving other people as a building block to personal happiness. What they've discovered through their study is that when you serve other people, your brain releases dopamine, which is sometimes referred to as the feel-good neurotransmitter. So you, you feel good about yourself when you serve others, which is kind of interesting given the fact that this is the mission to which God has called you if you're in Christ. Yeah, let, let, let me close with this thought. Okay, some of us would be a lot happier if we started making time to serve others. And again, this just so happens to be who God has made us to be in Christ, the mission to which he's called us. We used to walk in sins. Now he's recreated us in Christ to walk in good works. And at Christ Community Church, we, we love to help people serve others. I mean, we've got all sorts of ministries, both within our church and within our community at large with partners that we call Community Impact Partners, where you can serve you can roll up your sleeves, you can serve God and other people, and you could release some dopamine in your brain that'll make you a happier person. You know, several weeks ago, we did a survey at our worship services across four campuses. We wanted to collect some general demographic information about you, but the survey was also meant to figure out how many people are serving. How many people serve around here? So here's the, the good news, bad news results of that survey. Start with the good news. 53% of our regular attenders serve, okay, either within our church or our, our community, through our community impact partners. 50, I say that's good news because the standard rule of thumb is that in most churches, you've heard this, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. So we got 53% of the people working. That's pretty good. In fact, I want to say thank you. If you're one of those 53%, you're the reason we got a church. Okay, if you didn't do what you do serving-wise, there wouldn't be a Christ community church. However, the bad news is the 47% of our regular attenders who are not yet serving, and I want to say to you, we're going to change that this year. We're going to change that statistic. This is why we're calling 2018 the year of the volunteer. All year long, we're going to beat the drum for volunteerism because we believe this is the mission for which God has created you in Christ. This is why we developed a brand new website. If you go to ccclife.org, forward slash simply serve. You'll find this website that will describe scores of opportunities to serve either within our church body or again with one of our community impact partners. I encourage you to check out simply serve. If you, if you have surrendered your life to Jesus, God has created you for this in Christ. He's created you for the mission of walking in good works. We'd love to help you do it. Now, before we move to communion, I want to pray because I said a few moments ago that I was going to give you an opportunity, if you never have before, to surrender your life to Christ. So let's bow across our four campuses right now, humbly before God in prayer. This is your decision. It's the most important decision you will ever make. 
And you need to express your own heart toward God. You don't need to use my words, but you need to pray something like this. You need to say to God, God, I want to put my faith in you in my mind. I give you my mind. I believe. What do you believe? Can you say to him right now, I believe that I'm spiritually dead in my transgressions and sins. That my, my bad attitudes and my bad behavior, my, my bad words, they, you know, they all distance me from you, the giver of life, and so I'm spiritually dead. Can you say that from your heart? And then can you say, but I believe that Jesus died on the cross to take the death penalty in my place. Just tell God, I believe that in my mind. Can you say, I believe, I believe in my mind that you rose from the dead, Lord Jesus, and that right now, today, you're offering me forgiveness and new life. If that's what you believe in your heart, tell God that right now. But don't forget, faith is also a matter of the heart. So tell him now, if this is a decision you're making, say, I want you from my heart. You have so loved me that I want to I learn what it means to love you back. I want to love you more than I love my patterns of disobedience. Can you tell him from your heart you want him? And then it's a matter of the will. Right now, bowed before God Almighty, can you say, I surrender my will to King Jesus. I don't want to continue to lead my life. I want Jesus. I want to learn what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to understand his word and apply it to my life. I surrender my will to Jesus. Can you surrender right now your mind, your heart, your will to Jesus? I'm going to give you just a moment of quiet. And if I haven't helped you find the right words yet, you put it in your words right now. I'm surrendering to Christ. Would you do that? God, I want to pray that you would hear and honor the prayers of people who have just surrendered to Christ and that these people would be united with him in such a way that they would now be in Christ so that all the things your word says is true of people who are in Christ would be true of them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.